0: I am so uh, excited about uh, this message. You know, I'm I'm much more of a teacher at heart. It sounds like, kind of like your pastor, a verse-by-verse verse, uh, type teacher. But I also love uh, the worship hour when I get to, to be more exhortational. And uh, I'm going to try to do both in this next uh, little bit here. We've had a great uh, three sessions so far. I know many of you have uh, been out uh, for those and really enjoyed getting to meet you. But I want to wrap it up with a look at... Uh, The Rapture, and it's kind of hard for me sometimes to preach and teach in the same uh, setting because I kind of have to shift my mindset, and I'm not always the best preacher. I'll be honest with you. In fact, when we were, uh, when my wife and I were first married, I, my first church, I actually candidated at while I was in seminary before we were married, and we got the job right after we were married. And so, uh, day one of our marriage, I was uh, a first time pastor, and it was uh, about 45 minutes from where we lived, and we would commute on weekends, small country church, and on the way back, of course, being a young, eager, somewhat insecure preacher, I'd always kind of try to get some compliments out of uh, Wendy, and it wasn't, uh, I was not the best preacher, I have to tell you. So so, uh, we'd been married a couple of years, and I had an interesting little thing happen. I I walked in uh, to the bedroom one day, and and, uh, Wendy, I happened to see her putting a shoebox under the bed. And, and she seemed startled, and I said, Hey, what, what's that, honey? And she said, Oh, nothing, nothing, nothing no, no, don't worry about it. And I said, No, really, what, what is it? And she said, Don't worry about it, it's nothing, just forget it. I said, Come on, honey, you know, we're, uh, we're supposed to have all things in common, and we're not, you know, no secrets, but just tell me what it is. She said, Look, just forget it, don't worry about it. So I kind of let it go a little bit later that day. She said, Hey, I'm going to run some errands, and, uh, she said, uh, by the way, while I'm gone, whatever you do, don't look in that box. And I said, okay, I won't. She said, no, promise me. Look me in the eye. Promise me you're not going to go under the bed look in that box. I said, okay, I promise I'm not going to do it. So she left, and when I looked in the box, um, <clears throat> it was a strange thing. There, were, there was a whole wad of cash and three eggs, eggs like find in, you find know, in your refrigerator. So i didn't know what to make of it i put it back under the bed she comes home and finally curiosity got the best of me i said honey i have a confession to make i looked in the box she looked in the box i looked in the box what is going on it she said what what," i said what are those what are those eggs doing in this box under your bed she said well I'll, i'll tell you ever since we've been married i've been evaluating your sermons and every time you preach a bad sermon i put an egg in the box and so i'm sitting there doing the math been married two years preaching you know, three bad sermons, I'll, I'll take that, not bad. I said, well, that explains the eggs. What's all that cash in there? She said, oh, every time I collected a dozen eggs, I sold them. So uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll, we'll do a little better uh, today. But I, I want to I talk about the rapture. And if you have not been able to be here for the conference, uh, we've got lots of different material, both books and DVDs, on different topics that we've uh, talked about. I do want to mention that if you find this message today something that is meaningful or helpful or you think might be a benefit as an evangelistic tool for somebody else, we have this message on DVD called 1 minute after the rapture. It won't be exactly verbatim everything I say because I don't script it and I'm kind of, but the main points will be the same. So I just wanted to make you aware of that. So, uh 1 Thessalonians 4 is the key passage on the rapture. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. That word translated caught up is where we get the word rapture. The actual Greek word is harpazo, Arpazzo, but when Jerome translated the Greek New Testament into Latin, he used the, the Latin word rapire, which is where we get rapture. So the word rapture is very much a biblical word. It's used 13 times in the New Testament. And uh, it's variously translated as caught up or caught away or snatched away or pulled out is the idea. We see it's the same word used by Luke in Acts chapter 8 when he describes Philip as being caught away after his encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch. If you look up harpazo in a Greek lexicon or Greek dictionary, one of the meanings that's possible depending on the context is to rescue from threatening danger. Harpazo, to rescue from threatening danger. We actually see it used that way in the book of Jude, the 23rd verse, where it says, others say with fear pulling them out. That's the same word, harpazo. So if you go back to 1 Thessalonians 4, that's the idea behind the teaching on the rapture. It's to rescue from threatening danger. I want you to imagine, if you will, a young child who escapes the the notice of his mom while playing in the front yard and, and wanders out maybe chasing a ball into the street. And the mom looks up just in time to notice as a big old Ford F-150 is barreling down the street, headed straight for that young child, and there's no way she's going to reach him in time. But as it would happen, a jogger was running by right at that time, quickly discerned the situation, and in an instant reached out, grabbed that child by the collar and yanked it out of the way just as the truck went speeding by. That's the word picture of Harpazzo, to snatch away a sudden, quick, urgent rescue from what Paul describes in Galatians 1-4 as this present evil age. Now, we're going to talk more about what that means, but I do want to let you know right up front that that in no way should be understood as meaning that somehow Christians won't suffer, that we're not going to face difficulties and trials and tribulations. In fact, the Bible says just the opposite. We live in a fallen world where things are getting worse and worse, 2 Timothy 3.13. Paul said, everyone who desires to live godly is going to suffer persecution. Jesus said, in this world you'll have trouble, but be of good cheer, I've overcome it. So we expect to face suffering, and indeed, for the last 2,000 years of the church age, many believers throughout the world have faced unspeakable persecution and death and torture. And indeed, right now, at this very moment, there are more martyrs for the Christian faith than at any other time in human history. So the teaching of the rapture is not that we will be rescued before it gets too bad. That's not at all the teaching of the rapture. The biblical teaching on the rapture is that we will be rescued before the final outpouring of God's prophetic wrath. And the the winepress and the fury of the wrath of God are are treaded by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that's the rapture, caught up, rescued, snatched away. Uh, We know that it's going to happen very quickly, in fact, Paul elsewhere tells us it will happen in the twinkling of an eye. And when it does happen, the world as we know it will change forever. The rapture constitutes the end of this present age. And at that point, according to the biblical plan of the ages, the focus shifts into the final age as we get ready for the inaugural Uh, inauguration of God's kingdom program. So what I'd like to do this morning is to talk about this great event, the next great prophetic event to which the world looks forward from the perspective of those who are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, believers, and from the perspective of those who are left behind. Let's start with those who are caught up, okay? Talk about the good news, right? those who are caught up one minute after the rapture will, first of all, experience the long awaited return of the Savior. We've been talking about that for three sessions, how the Bible uh, is telling a story that ultimately uh, culminates in the kingdom inauguration when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords takes the throne. And we've been waiting, as have others uh, for centuries, for that uh, to happen. Jesus gives us the first inkling of how that will happen as it relates to the church in John 14. The night He was betrayed in the upper room, He's having that intimate moment with His disciples. He, he institutes the Lord's Supper, He washed the disciples' feet, and He says to them, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is the earliest reference to the rapture anywhere in humanity. In other words, before this moment, there was no inkling anywhere on earth of something called the rapture. The rapture is called a mystery, meaning it was something that was previously unrevealed. Paul would later call it that in 1 Corinthians 15. But here, even though the church hadn't been formed yet, Jesus is reminding His disciples because as God, of course, He knew what was going to unfold in the days and hours to come. He wanted them to know that I'm going to come and receive you to myself. But it's important to note that Jesus did not say that the purpose of His future coming was so that He could be where they are on the earth. It's so that we can be where He is in heaven. That's the difference between the rapture and the second coming. At the second coming, He comes all the way to the earth, takes the throne, and rules over the world. At the rapture, we meet Him in the air. And we are experiencing some things that we're going to talk about here in a second in heaven. This is what uh, Paul called the glorious appearing, the blessed hope of our great God and Savior. And one minute after the rapture, finally, at long last, we will experience that long-awaited return. We've used this chart a lot this weekend, but here's where the rapture fits. And you'll notice that it is the next great prophetic event to which the world looks forward. Nothing has to happen before the rapture. Sometimes people will say, well, I know the rapture won't happen today because the temple hasn't been rebuilt or because such and such or this and that. None none of that makes any sense according to the biblical narrative. The Bible teaches the doctrine of imminency. Imminency means the rapture can happen at any moment. It could happen today. It could have happened yesterday. It didn't. It could happen today. It might happen tomorrow. It might not happen for 50 years. We don't know. But one minute after the rapture, those who are caught up will experience that long-awaited return. But we'll also experience a timely rescue a timely rescue. Again, the passage I quoted a moment ago that the Lord someday is going to deliver us from this present evil age. And the rapture does, in fact, rescue us from this ever-worsening world. Uh, The world is getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, That's what we see from God's plan of the ages. It started in the garden and over time. God is unfolding His plan precisely as the Word of God tells us it would, and we looked in the first hour at Daniel's prophecy, which comes true right to the day. Uh, But here we are living in this final last days period, and when He comes back, we're going to be rescued from this period, which the Bible calls the last days or the present evil age. It's an age where Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's the God of this age. This is His domain, and uh, the Lord's going to rescue us from that. I've mentioned several times that depravity is a degenerative disease. Sometimes we forget this very important principle. I was talking to someone at the break about optimism versus pessimism, and a lot of people today think that if we can just get smart enough and see enough people get saved or elect enough Christians or get the best technology, we'll get better and better and better and better and better. Uh, But that's not the testimony of Scripture. The testimony of Scripture is that depravity is degenerative. It doesn't get better with time. It gets worse, and it needs a remedy. And it's only through faith in Christ can we deal with the problem of sin in in the world. Uh, It doesn't self-correct. Of course, there's always seasons of blessing. God is a powerful God. He's doing amazing things at any one time. There are pockets of revival. There are miracles happening. God is doing amazing things. The very fact that people come to faith is an incredible uh, miracle, and angels rejoice in heaven over that, and we praise God for that. We should always be working to live for Christ and make the world a better place and, 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 and as shine, as Paul says, like lights in this perverse generation. But that doesn't change the reality that until the Prince of Peace and King of Kings comes back and takes the throne the world is getting worse and worse. 2 Timothy 3.13 tells us that evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse. Paul said that in 67 AD. So that's if it's been getting worse and worse and we're roughly 2,000 years later, you can just imagine how bad it is. So if you look at back at our uh, timeline again, sin entered the world roughly here. And since that time, roughly 6,000 years, we've been getting worse and worse and worse and it will reach a pinnacle a climax if you will in that final seven-year period that we talked about in the sunday school hour when the cosmic struggle between god and satan reaches new heights and comes to a final climactic end with the battle of armageddon as i mentioned we know that the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one if you recall that conversation in the book of job when job confronted god in heaven and the lord said to satan where do you come from what did satan say from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. The earth is the devil's playground. And the rapture will rescue us from this present evil age one day. See, We recognize that the struggle that we have, we should recognize anyway, is not against flesh and blood. The whole premise of my Spirit of the Antichrist series that we just completed is that there really are people conspiring with the devil right now to try to usher in a satanic one world system that's what satan's wants ever since he got kicked out of heaven that's what he's been trying to do and we uh, sometimes think our enemy is is someone with flesh and bones or our enemy is someone from a political party or our enemy is whatever a, a, a social system a, a governmental system communism or islam or socialism you name it that's not the enemy Those are manifestations of an ultimate unseen uh, enemy. Uh, We wrestle against principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness and spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places. Uh, You know, there are only two times in human history, according to the Bible, when Satan himself, the prince of demons, indwells a human being. We know that demons can indwell unbelievers. And Satan, of course, is not omnipresent, he's not omniscient, he's not omnipotent, he can only be in one place at one time, right? So Satan is using one-third of the angels that fell with him at his disposal to accomplish his means, and they're out territorially reporting back and helping, he's help using them to, uh, to, to work on his battle. Uh, and of course, we know, because we know the rest of the story, that he's lost the battle, and, and that's what we've been talking about uh, this whole uh, conference. But there are only two times when Satan thought he had an opportunity, that he didn't want to delegate, it was so important of a moment in his mind, in his battle with God, that he said, I'm going to handle this one myself. And both occasions are related to the, the advents of Christ, the first advent and the second advent. So here God puts on human flesh, comes to Satan's playground, makes himself vulnerable, and Satan, rather than delegating to demons, says... I got this one, guys, and he indwells Judas, according to the Bible, and Judas then, of course, betrays Christ, and Satan saw that Christ was crucified in that way. Now, Jesus rose from the dead three days later, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and how Satan must have shrieked in horror when that happened, Uh, but Satan still doesn't believe he's lost, even though he received a mortal wound at that moment, just as Genesis 3.15 tells us he would, and we talked about that. Uh, so he's been struggling for the last 2,000 years to still try to win this battle in a futile effort. Uh, and it's a, it's, an, it's a powerful battle, and it's a powerful thing when you think about all the devastation and destruction that Satan, who Jesus says was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. that's the, He lied and, and killed. That's what he does. Uh, and, and that's what he's doing. So, you know, I, I've, I've told this story often, that you know, the story of a missionary who's maybe uh, serving in a remote jungle and he's out away from his hut but he comes back and as he comes back to his hut he steps through the door and he sees this massive python snake there it had made its way into his hut so the missionary pulls a sidearm which he always carried for protection shoots the python right in the head but then, of course, if you've ever shot a snake, you know they begin to then writhe. Well, this thing was so massive and so huge that it's writhing around inside the hut. The missionary has to step back outside, and he's watching and hearing as things are clattering and clanging, and he sees, you know, dust flying up, and he just watches until finally, all lay still, and he knew that it was over. Well, at Calvary, Satan received the mortal wound, and now for the last two thousand years, he's been writhing, and destroying, and just, you know, killing. But someday he'll be cast into the everlasting lake of fire, along with the antichrist and the false prophet, and it will be all things will be made new. So the rapture definitely rescues us from this ever worsening world. But more than that, the rapture rescues us from the wrath that is to come. Remember, this seven-year period, as bad as things are now, this seven-year period that's going to come is going to be not like anything that you've ever seen. It's known as the Great Day. Of the Lord's wrath. It's uh, the overflowing scourge, the prophets called us. And the Bible promises that the body of Christ, the church, will be rescued, delivered before that wrath. We will not face the wrath of God and we're going to be delivered from it because God has not appointed us to wrath but to obtain deliverance. Salvation there is a reference to the, the rapture, deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ. So one minute after the rapture, we will, those who are caught up anyway, will experience a long-awaited return, a timely rescue, and a physical renewal. One of the things about the kingdom is that ultimately, when all is said and done and time shall be no more, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. Paul made this very clear. Uh, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit corruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. Someone's pointed out that last sentence there might be a good motto for the church nursery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. But what he's talking about there is that this body, which is under the curse of sin, cannot enter the ultimate kingdom. We have to be glorified. And at the rapture, uh, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed, those who are on the earth. Uh, why? Because this corruptible has to put on incorruption. This mortal has to put on immortality. Paul tells us the whole world is groaning, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Uh, we're looking forward to the redemption of our bodies. Uh, today, when a person dies that's a believer, they go immediately to be in the presence of the Lord. Uh, their body, goes if they're buried, goes to the ground. Um, and at the rapture, every believer from the church age who has died is going to be re- the physical aspect of them is going to be reconstituted. It doesn't matter whether they were lost at sea, burned up, buried 1,900 years ago. Those very atoms never cease to exist, and they're going to be translated, glorified, into a glorified body for all of eternity. Those of us that have not experienced death, we will be not resurrected, but translated in a moment, in a twinkling of a night, will be changed. So the believers who have already died will be resurrected. The dead in Christ will rise first. Uh, doesn't mean they've been asleep or lacked consciousness for 2,000 years. They're in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Uh, your pastor's been preaching through Philippians. And I don't know if he's gotten to the passage yet, but where Paul was talking about how I desire to leave this earth and be with the Lord, which is far greater, but it's more needful for me to be here, right? And that's the way we feel sometimes, right? You know, honestly, if it weren't for my family and and my flock and my friends and people that I that I care about, man, I'd much rather. I mean, no offense. I'd rather I'd be out of here, be gone, be with the Lord, right? Get rid of this sin stricken world. Um, but when that moment happens, there's going to be a physical renewal, and then there's going to be a corresponding resurrection. So. Those who are alive are translated, those who've already died are resurrected, and we all have this grand reunion uh, in the sky. Remember, the dead in Christ will rise first. So one of the charts that we have in our chart book, and we don't have time to go through all of it here, but if you're interested, the Bible is very clear about when each person receives their eternal body. Um, For all unbelievers, it occurs at the great white throne judgment. Uh, but for believers, it occurs at varying times. For the church, it's at the rapture. Old Testament saints, it's at the second coming. And millennial believers, it's at the end of the millennium. So then, as I mentioned, there's going to be a great reunion, a joyful reunion in the sky as we get to see our loved ones who've already died in the Lord and gone before us. Um, that's the reason Paul is able to say in the rapture passage in First Thessalonians 4 that we don't sorrow as if we have no hope. Because we know that even though it's it's painful to lose someone you love, we're going to see them again. That it's, it, it's that life on earth is just a speck on the timeline of eternity, and so we're separated. But we know that when the Lord comes back, He's going to bring with Him those who sleep. That's a euphemism for died, and there will be this grand reunion in the sky, and so. Not only are we going to see our loved ones again, but even greater than that, we're going to see our Savior, the one who took our place on the cross, the one who died for our sins and rose again, our Savior. We're going to see Him face to face. I mean, what an incredible moment uh, that will be. And um, so there is a generation alive, and it could very well be this one, who will not see death. We will be, if you know the Lord, you will be caught up to meet the Lord um, in the air. Um, and then there'll be a personal reward. We talked about this briefly. I think, uh, I think it was this morning. Yeah, yeah. So a personal reward because Jesus said when He comes, behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me. And that's talking about uh, the, the treasures that we can store up in heaven based on our life of faithfulness and service. Um, Colossians puts it this way, whatever you do, talking to believers, do it heartily as to the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward. And so uh, he's going to either say, well done, good and faithful servant, be in charge of ten cities or five cities, and some he may just say, no, we're not going to put you in charge of anything. And that's okay. See, When we get to heaven in the new heavens and the new earth, there's not going to be any sin, so there won't be any jealousy or comparison, or I won't think, well, that's not fair. I was a much better Christian than Harrison. You know, I'm not gonna, we're not going to do that. We're going to all enjoy the eternal bliss of heaven and seeing our Savior. But innately... Some will have a greater reward than others, and one of them, not the only, but one of the motivations, in the back of one of my books, Getting the Gospel Wrong, I have an appendix that talks about reasons for the believer to do good works, and there's some 30-something biblical reasons, but one of those is because we want to be rewarded. Jesus gave that motivation. He told the disciples, be busy, do something with that mina, so that when I come, you'll you'll be put in charge, and that's that's normal. That's the way God created us, you know. It's like a football coach... um, if you're, if you're at the one-yard line and it's uh, last play of the game and you're down by five and you need a touchdown, only got one play left and you got two running backs at your disposal. And let's say one of them uh, the, the whole season um, carried the ball seven times off the bench, fumbled it six times, and lost four of the five fumbles or four of the six fumbles. But you got another running back who's rushed for an FL record 2,800 yards, set the record with 47 touchdowns, never fumbled a single time, who are you going to give the ball to? And so in the kingdom, those who've proven themselves to be faithful stewards are going to be rewarded appropriately. And those who don't still get into the kingdom, that's a free gift based on the blood of Christ. Um, so uh, there will be a a personal reward. And then finally, the seventh thing that those who are caught up will experience is a glorious rejoicing. Every time the Bible talks about the rapture, uh, it talks about it with a a hint of encouragement. Again, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul's teaching about the rapture was comforting to the Thessalonians, and it's comforting to us as well. It's one of the many reasons that a rapture after the tribulation which some people mistakenly teach makes no sense it makes no sense based on daniel's prophecy makes no sense based on paul's promise that the church will not face any of the wrath of god and the whole seven-year tribulation is the wrath of god it starts in genesis uh, revelation 6 goes all the way to chapter 18 but one of the biggest reasons that just wouldn't make any sense to me is every rapture passage is comforting so think about it this way how how would this make any sense dear brothers and sisters in christ you are about to experience seven years of pure hell on earth. There are going to be sealed judgments. There are going to be giant locusts. There's going to be earthquakes like nothing you've ever seen. Massive hailstones are going to be falling out of the sky and crashing into people. You're going to be needing to hide out into the cave, and that's just the sealed judgments. Then there are going to be trumpet judgments. Then there's going to be bowl judgments. It's going to be a time of unprecedented persecution one third of people are going to die then another quarter of the world's population will die all fresh water will be turned into poisonous water there's going to be a massive asteroid that comes down out of heaven to hit the earth therefore comfort one another with those words i mean no the comfort is that we're not appointed to wrath we're not going to be there when that final battle takes place but what about those who are left behind Well, there are several things. I'm going to list ten of them here that will be true one minute after the rapture for those who don't know the Lord Jesus and are left behind. The first thing they will experience is a global confusion, a global confusion. The sudden disappearance of millions of people will certainly create a global sense of bewilderment. What's going on? It will be one of those end-of-the-world-as-we-know-it scenarios. What is happening? What is going on? But we know that God is not the author of confusion. Satan, on the other hand, is. And one of the Luciferian credos, as they try to usher in this satanic one-world system, is order out of chaos. They've got to create chaos so they can bring order. And there will be a global confusion one minute after the rapture that leads then to a false explanation. They're going to need to explain this. They're certainly not going to stand up on satellite TV and announced, listen, the creator of the universe in keeping with his holy word has just rescued the bride of Christ before the great and terrible day of the Lord. They're not going to say that. Satan is a liar and he's going to bring a false explanation. Jesus described Satan as uh, whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie because he speaks from his own resources. He is a liar and the father of lies. So we don't know what false explanation they might give. We could speculate. Uh, There are all kinds of things that are in the works that would be at their disposal to try to explain away this supernatural rescue. Uh, In Spirit of the Antichrist, in that 18-video set, we we talk about a a lot of these, but one such uh, theory would be Project Bluebeam, developed by NASA, in which they uh, use these massive holographic images originally created in conjunction with the army to, to, to use as a weapon of war. So, for example, they might be fighting a, a Muslim enemy, and so they might project a holographic image of Muhammad and with massive loudspeakers saying, you know, lay down your weapons or something like that. That was the original uh, theory of it. Uh, but they can make some pretty powerful holographic images. In fact, in Spirit of the Antichrist, under the, the video on the, the rise in paranormal activity, I talk about how uh, right now there are people paying $100 or more for tickets to a Whitney Houston concert. You're saying, wait a minute, Whitney Houston, I thought she'd die. Oh, yeah, she's dead, but she's also on tour with her holographic images, and several other deceased artists are doing the same thing, and you watch that concert You would not know you're not watching a real person. And so they can use this type of technology to project images. We also see Hollywood getting into the mix, talking about all kinds of scenarios where they could say maybe we were invaded by aliens and we were all captured and, you know, beamed up or, you know, who knows what what they're going to say. But there's no question there will be a false explanation which will constitute an unprecedented deception, an unprecedented deception deception is getting worse and worse. We talked about that already. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.13, evil men and impostors are getting worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That means it's easier to deceive and it's easier to be deceived, which is a pretty deadly combination. And uh, in Spirit of the Antichrist, we talk about how ultimately one Antichrist is coming who will be indwelt by uh, Satan uh, to seize the moment and try to overcome Christ one more time when Christ once again makes Himself vulnerable and comes back. Um, but in, along the way, many antichrists have come. In fact, the spirit of the antichrist is already at work among us. And Jesus, in His Olivet Discourse, talking about that final seven-year period that we talked about from Daniel, gives the disciples and the future nation of Israel who, who will be alive at that time a strong warning and he begins how does he begin the Olivet Discourse what are the first words out of Jesus mouth the disciples say we want to know what the sign of your coming is if it's not going to be now we thought it was now it's not going to be now okay when's it going to be first words out of his mouth in that long sermon are take heed that no one deceives you and he says this many times in that Olivet Discourse for example uh, many will come in my name and deceive many Many false prophets will arise and deceive many. Uh, False Christ will show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect, right? And this is what we talk about in in Great Last Day's Deception, uh, how this deception is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh, In chapter 8 of Great Last Day's Deception, I talk about top 10 lies that people believe today, and frankly, most believers believe at least five or six of those lies, and uh, it's... it's, uh, Uh, It's the principle of the bigger the lie, the more it will be believed. The actual quote from Mein Kampf is the principle which is quite true in itself is that in the big lie, there is always a certain force of credibility. I mean, just think about it. Somehow, most of the world, 7.5 billion people, if I had to dead reckon it, I'd say at least probably 7 billion people today, believe that we descended from a wet rock over billions of years and our ancestors are monkeys. Now just think about that. Let's say you're you're sitting at Starbucks in the year I don't know 1300, and you're talking to a friend, before Darwin and his eugenics program and his cousin, and you say, huh, Wouldn't it be funny if some someday most people on the earth thought that we were related to monkeys and we all evolved from a wet rock? Your friend would say, Man, you what are you on drugs? I mean, what 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 a terrible thought. No one would ever believe that. There's no way. And yet here we are, with a little help from Satan and a few of his co-conspirators on Earth, and the control of the compulsory government schooling system and the control of the textbook companies. and now next thing you know, we everybody believes you're evolved from monkeys. That's a ridiculous lie. You're just on the face of it. And yet most people believe it. Most people believe in an old Earth. Most people don't believe the first five words of the Bible. in the beginning, God created. Uh, Vladimir Lenin said, a lie told often enough becomes the truth. And uh, one of my favorite theologians, Mark Twain, said, it's easier to fool people than to convince them they've been fooled. And the Antichrist, when he comes, is going to deceive the world with all lying wonders and all unrighteous deception. So there's going to be an unprecedented deception one minute after the rapture for those who are left behind. But then very quickly there will be an intense lamentation. Because for many of those left behind, there will be a moment of intense regret or panic or horror as they realize in that split second after the rapture has occurred that the gospel message they had previously heard and rejected is in fact true. Everything they had heard from their Christian friends or their pastor or maybe read in a book perhaps something they heard on radio or TV while channel surfing, they will realize one minute after the rapture that the gospel is true. The return of Christ is real, and they've been left behind. And so there will be a time of intense lamentation. Now, we know from the biblical record that those left behind will have an opportunity to be saved. They can believe the gospel. But deception will be so great and so powerful that if they, if they were blinded to the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, before the rapture, It just seems like it would be very difficult when deception is so much greater for them to refuse the mark of the beast and believe the good news about salvation through Jesus Christ and Him alone. So there will be an intense lamentation. And then we're going to see, as we've talked a lot about, a shift into a new dispensation. Dispensation is a biblical word or economos. It means economy or or stewardship, if you will. And so, you know, as I mentioned, we're sitting here living in The church age after the rapture and after the the completion of that final seven years of Daniel's 490-year plan that was paused after the uh, coming of Christ on the day of uh, triumphal entry will shift into the final age, the kingdom age, Um, and there will be a transition. Uh, The rapture ends the church age. It closes that parenthesis. And the tribulation is a transition between the present age and the final kingdom age. The Bible says, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he will gather together all in one, uh, together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. That's the word oikonomia. It's a mystery. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, Israel will finally get her kingdom someday. This is what Daniel talked about in Daniel 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's statue and Daniel 7 with uh, Daniel's bizarre vision of the beasts is that for whatever reason, God in His divine design has planned for Israel to be subject to Gentile world domination all the way through the revived Roman Empire until their long-awaited Messiah comes back. And this time, He'll be crowned as a king, not crowned with thorns, but crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. And so uh, one minute after the rapture, the world begins to shift into a new paradigm, a final new stewardship, a new economy on earth that will ultimately lead to the return of Christ. But number six, one minute after the rapture, those left behind will experience a withdrawn protection. And we talked about this earlier as, as well. The Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2 that he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And you'll notice in the New King James there that he is capitalized because that's a reference to the restraining influence of none other than God the Holy Spirit. You know as bad as the world is now just imagine how bad it will be one minute after the rapture when for a short period of time no one single believer occupies planet earth. I mean for roughly 2,000 years Satan's been trying to take over this planet and claim it as his own ever since he received the ultimate fatal wound. He's been trying since he got kicked out of heaven, but in earnest, desperately, in desperation, trying since uh, Calvary. And it's easy to see as we look back through the annals of history how much evil he has orchestrated. I mean, we could go back before the church age into the ancient Near East and think of Nebuchadnezzar or Ahab. Or in our modern times, Herod and Stalin and Hitler and Mao and Pol Pot and on and on and on. The fingerprints of Satan are all over this fallen world. But what the pages of history do not as overtly record are the number of times that God's people, under the influence of God's Holy Spirit, have preempted some dastardly deed or plan. I mean, maybe it was a firm ethical word in the midst of a corporate boardroom meeting from a Christian board member. Maybe it was a private counsel to a world dictator by a Christian. Maybe it was the selfless sacrifice of godly men and women who stood up to evil and prevailed in some unsung ways that we'll never know about this side of heaven. But without question, the Holy Spirit's restraining influence in and through believers like you and I in the church today has been unmistakable happening behind the scenes. It's a protective influence. And one minute after the rapture, that protection will be gone, and the world will experience evil virtually unchecked. And then, very soon after the rapture, we will see the revelation of the man of sin, an evil revelation. Paul calls him the man of sin, the son of perdition. He will be revealed He's variously referred to as the beast, the Antichrist, the beast of the sea. Um, Satan's man of the hour is on standby at all times. Again, Satan's not omniscient, so he doesn't know when the rapture is going to happen. People ask me all the time, do you think the Antichrist is alive today? Well, absolutely. Satan's choice for the Antichrist is alive today. And if the rapture were to happen right now, he's going to immediately begin working again directly, I believe, based on 2 Thess 2 2 and Daniel chapter 8. Uh, to indwell him himself, uh, Paul tells us his power will be from the working of Satan. The Antichrist will be, and so he's got to have a person ready. Maybe it was Hitler, maybe it was Stalin. I don't know. We we we, the Rapture didn't happen then, but if it were to happening today, he's got someone on standby. And by the way, if you're interested, see me out back afterwards by the bike racks, and I'll give you my list of who I think the candidates are. But. Um, But enough about our current administration. Anyway, um, one one minute after the rapture, this man of sin, the Antichrist, will begin his rise to prominence. Uh, He may already be in a position of power by that time. Uh, He may already be a world leader even. But as the end times begin with the rapture, the rapture is the beginning of the end, the beginning of the end times, so too does Satan's counterfeit plan get kicked into high gear at the rapture and the Antichrist will be unveiled. As we talked about from Daniel 9, 24 to 27, he's going to confirm a covenant for one week, which is Shabuah, one seven-year period. We showed you that this morning. And we won't know his identity for sure until he signs that treaty. But one minute after the rapture, he begins his ascent. But one minute after the rapture or after the rapture for those who are left behind. There will also be a worldwide conversion. As we said, there will be people who get saved. In fact, the Bible tells us that there will be 144,000 first who believe the gospel somehow and are saved. Uh, Maybe they read it in the Bible. Maybe God supernaturally reveals the good news of salvation through His Son and our Savior Jesus Christ, but they get saved. And through their ministry, We see a great multitude of every nation, not tribe, tongue, and language that comes out of the Great uh, Tribulation. And many of those will be martyred. Those who get saved during the Tribulation, many of them will give their lives. Uh, They will be beheaded, um, but many of them will survive. And the 144,000 are going to go throughout all the world and preach the gospel, and then the end will come. So there will be a worldwide conversion and then there's going to be a geopolitical reorganization. From the chaos and confusion created by the rapture and seized upon by the Luciferians and their champion Antichrist will will emerge a satanic one-world order, a new world order, as they call it, a one-world government, ultimately headed by Satan himself in the form of the Antichrist. And I might Hasten to add, there's nothing biblically that precludes the one-world system from already being in place before the rapture. The Bible just says the Antichrist will take the helm of it. For many years, for centuries really, people who believe in the rapture and teach the Bible in its plain normal sense have thought that the one-world system will be developed by the Antichrist. But as I've studied this, I've not found anything in Scripture that precludes it from already being in place. So I asked this last night, has it ever occurred to you that if the Lord tarries this coming long enough, we may be raptured as Chinese citizens? We don't know. But one minute after the rapture, there will be this geopolitical reorganization. And that's been Satan's goal all along, to usher in a one-world government where everybody worships him. John Lennon spoke of the world in this manner when he sang his famous song, Imagine There's No Countries. It isn't hard to do. No religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Imagine all the people sharing all the world, and the world will live as one. But it's all counterfeit because he's the antichrist, the fake Christ, the one who is against Christ. And it's not until the rider on the right horse in Revelation 19, who's called Faithful and True, comes back that we will see real peace. See, no amount of peace can be brokered until the Prince of Peace is on the throne. So we can talk all day about the happenings in the Middle East and the Gaza Strip and moving the, the capital and moving the embassy and this and that and people signing this treaty or that treaty. It's, none of it gets me excited because we live in a fallen world where Satan is prince. And this geopolitical organization is what we talk about at length in Spirit of the Antichrist. And it's fast at work happening right now uh, as we see things moving around us. But one day, uh, after the tribulation, Christ is going to come back. The government will be upon His shoulder, and there will be no end to peace. You know, Anybody that thinks we're living in the kingdom now, let me ask you this. If you look around the world, do you think all governments are upon the shoulder and under the authority of our Lord and Savior? You'd have to be blind to, to think such a thing. But Zechariah the prophet says, One day the Lord will be king over the whole earth. And when He comes back, He's going to strike the nations and rule them with a rod of iron, as we read about. So we're headed to a one-world government one way or the other. Ultimately, Christ is going to take the helm for all of eternity. But for a brief period of time before that, in the final battle, Satan is going to rule through the Antichrist. And then finally, for those who are left behind after the rapture, they will experience a fearful expectation. You know This great day of the Lord's wrath, um, you know, it's really bad right now all over the world for a lot of Christians and it may get bad for us. We may not be able to do these things that we're doing right now. There's a bill right now waiting to be debated and signed that would make it illegal for your pastor or me or anyone else to stand behind a pulpit and call out homosexuality or gender neutrality or any of that stuff. We can go to jail for it. And in many parts of the country, they do that. So we're fast approaching the time when we won't be able to preach the whole counsel of God, at least not without consequence. Um, So it's bad, for sure, and getting worse. But when the wrath of God is poured out after the rapture, uh, to borrow the words of that 1970s rock group BTO, you ain't seen nothing yet. See, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. As we read earlier, when Christ comes back, He's going to tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Isaiah the prophet talks about how the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty will shake the earth. Paul said, that those who are unbelievers and refuse to accept the free gift of eternal life are treasuring up for themselves wrath in the day of wrath. That's what we're headed to. And whenever I read this verse, and I'll, I'll close with this, I, I think of the famous Jonathan Edwards sermon. And on July 8, 1741, the great awakening came to the little New England town of Enfield. The pastor of a congregational church in Northampton, Massachusetts, accepted the invitation to travel 30 miles south along the Connecticut River to be the guest speaker that day in the congregational church in Enfield. Little did the traveling preacher know as he arrived and mounted the pulpit to address the assembled townspeople that the sermon he was about to deliver would become one of the most famous in the history of Christianity. The preacher was Jonathan Edwards. Who later became the third president of Princeton University back in the day when the Ivy League schools stood for the Bible? His subject was the imminent danger of remaining unconverted in the face of God's furious wrath. The title of his now famous sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And throughout his sermon edwards graphically depicts the horrors of hell and the impending doom awaiting all who've never been born again by faith alone in christ alone i'd like to read just a short segment from his sermon he said the wrath of god is like great waters that are damned for the present but they increase more and more and rise higher and higher until an outlet is given And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once let loose. Tis true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. Remember we talked about how people cry out for justice because for so long Satan has had his way. Tis true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing, and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are continually rising and waxing more and more mightily, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw His hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. Listen. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow. One minute after the rapture, the world will experience a fearful expectation that will set in, because they know it's just a matter of time before the kingdom finally comes, and God's word is true. So we looked at one minute after the rapture from the perspective of those who are caught up and from the perspective of those who are left behind. What, what will your perspective be? I'm going to close in prayer, and I'll turn it over to the pastor. But if there's someone here today, I don't know you all. It's been a wonderful weekend. I, I wish I could stay here longer and just really fellowship. We've had some great discussions. And, and, uh, but I, I don't want to make the mistake of assuming that everyone who, by God's providence, made their way into this place today knows the Lord. And uh, there's an urgency to the gospel because we don't know when that twinkling of an eye moment will come. And I want to make sure everybody has the opportunity uh, to trust the Lord. So I'm going to pray, and then I'll turn it over to the pastor. And um, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, don't leave this place without trusting in Christ. It's not a matter of walking an aisle or signing a card or doing a dance. or you know, It's just a matter of simple faith. You can do it right where you're sitting, childlike faith. Has there ever been a time in your life when you've trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only one who can satisfy the wrath of God, forgive your sin, and give you the free gift of eternal life? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the reminder that we find in it of the blessed hope and the reminder that we see in it that You are in full control, that nothing escapes Your notice, and that Your plan is working out right on schedule. Lord, we love you and thank you for this reminder. We do pray if there's one here today that doesn't know you, that today they would place their faith in your Son and our Savior. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.